opening your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 19 again, and have them handy. Last week I concentrated on the particular elements of the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, independent of the message that Matthew was communicating by telling it. Why? Well, because the familiarity of the parable is lost on our modern Marx-influenced ears, honestly. So before we dove into Jesus' immediate application of this parable, we needed to understand the perilous plight of the day laborers, the graciousness of this prefigured vineyard owner, and we needed to be challenged by a biblical understanding of property rights and the freedom of the property owner to discriminate in his extension of mercy. As it says in verse 15 of chapter 20, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? How many of you enjoy getting to stay glued to one text for an entire sermon? No jumping around at all. I mean, I only quoted two other texts, and even then I only touched them lightly and moved on. I'm glad you liked that, and I hope you got the feel of it, because today will be nothing like that at all. Um, In order to understand this parable rightly, context is key. We need to see how this text is rooted in the Old Testament tradition. We need to consider what's going on in the flow of Matthew and how he uses the concept of the vineyard elsewhere. And we'll also need to look for other clues from the rest of the New Testament just to show that we're handling it right, to test ourselves. Is this consistent with how the other New Testament authors handle this concept? Do we see it elsewhere? So let's read Matthew 19, 30 through, through 2016 once again, and then we'll get started through that hard work. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And when he went out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I'll give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he also went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, Because no one hired us. And he said to them, You go out into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said uh, to the to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one of them received a denarius. When those hired about the first came, they thought that they had received more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered, and he said to them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me for Daenerys? Take what is yours and go, but I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious or evil 
You know, I see things clearly because I'm generous. So the last shall be first and the first last. In order to understand how the kingdom of heaven is like this parable, the kingdom of heaven is like, we have to understand what's meant by the kingdom of heaven or the vineyard. We have to understand who Jesus is referring to when he's talking about these early morning laborers. We need to know who is represented by the late day laborers who received just as much as the early morning laborers. And how that the early morning laborers were or will be provoked to jealousy by the inclusion of these late day laborers. So we'll start with the kingdom of heaven slash the vineyard. Rightly understanding the kingdom of heaven guards us from one of the most common misinterpretations of this parable. Unfortunately, it's quite possible that this popular misinterpretation is where your mind immediately goes when you hear this parable. You've at least heard this interpretation if it's not what you hold to. Nothing you do has any bearing on your reward in heaven. It doesn't matter if you're converted young and serve God faithful through trials and difficulties. It doesn't matter if you persevere through persecutions and hardships. In the end, all of our reward is the same. Those who are converted late receive the same rewards as those who are converted early. Isn't that kind of how it's usually understood? In this construct, the parable is taken to mean that um, the people who convert early in life shouldn't be jealous of those later cons- uh, converts who will receive the same rewards as they do. Well, that sounds sweet and all. And there'd be no injustice with God if he chose to give rewards like that. He, he can do what he wants with his own. But there's problems. The reward is not the same for every individual. They're, they're just not. Neither in heaven nor in the resurrection. Why should we rejoice when we're persecuted? Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. Why? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. We should rejoice when we get to persevere through those sorts of insults because we get reward for enduring through it. Jesus encourages his fathers to his followers to treasure up treasure for themselves. Matthew 6, 19 through 20. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but do store up for yourself treasure of treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves cannot break in and steal. So we're encouraged in Matthew 6, 2 through 4, to when we pray, to pray in secret. Why? Not in the open, because if you pray in the open, you got your reward already. But if you pray in secret, your Father, who sees what's done in secret, will reward you. Same thing with giving or in fasting in, uh, in 6, 6 and 6, 7 through, uh, 17 through 18. Jesus even promises reward for the smallest contributions made to his mission, doesn't he? In Matthew 10, 42. It's all through Matthew. Like, we don't have to bounce around through all the Bible. Matthew 10, 42. Whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones who believe on me even a cup of cold water to drink. Truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. There's reward for those things that 
we do. You can also see it in Luke 6, 35, or Revelation 22, 12, or Matthew 16, 27. I won't read them, but on your own time, I encourage you to. And not only in, the, in, in heaven, great is the reward in heaven, but even in the resurrection, it says that all of our resurrections aren't the same. In Hebrews 11, 35, others were tortured, not accepting their release. Why? So that they might obtain a better resurrection. So there's a such thing as a better or a worse resurrection, isn't there, according to the scriptures. So although individual rewards are not the same in heaven, nor in the resurrection, the rewards are the same for these laborers in the kingdom, regardless of how long they labored. So it's not talking about that, is it? It can't be. The kingdom of heaven is not heaven. The kingdom of heaven is not referring to heaven. And it's not referring to the resurrected state. There's a lot of confusion regarding the kingdom of heaven. Too often it's understood in a pietistic, even Gnostic sort of disembodied metaphysical reality with people floating around as spiritual entities on harps. Uh, not on harps, on clouds, playing harps. On harps, playing clouds. No. Matthew never uses the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, to refer to the disembodied state after we die. Nor does anyone else. Neither is the resurrected state referred to as the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, as it's called usually outside of the book of Matthew. Matthew uses kingdom of heaven because they, the Jews didn't like the use of the name God, so they changed it and he used the same idea, heaven there, referring to the same idea of the kingdom. It refers to the fulfillment of the Old Testament expectation of a renewed earth. Adam sinned and the whole world was plunged into sin. But rather than destroy mankind, God graciously promised them a deliverer, didn't he? Immediately in the curse, there's also a blessing. There's a promise in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, to, he says to the serpent, between your seed and her seed. He, the seed of the woman, will bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. Somebody's going to crush the serpent's head and fix what's messed up. No deliverer came and the world became worse and worse and more and more wicked. And then after the flood in Genesis 11, mankind banded together in disobedience to God's calling for them and they sp to spread all over the earth and they thought they will build a tower all the way to heaven. And what did God do in Genesis 11? He did Babel. He confused their languages and they spread out over the whole earth because they couldn't understand each other. It would have made dinner really awkward. So they all spread out and they married with people that spoke the like language and different leaders rose up and different cultures developed out of that. That's where all your nations come from. And with those different nations came different cultures and different gods and different worldviews. And they all believed that their way of life and their system of laws to reward good and punish evil would lead to blessing and prosperity in life. And they were all at war with each other over whose ways were the best. And it led to jealousy and carnage, destruction everywhere. Each society got some things right and some things wrong, but each came woefully short of God's holy nature, and death was the outcome for each and every one of these societies. Each and every one of these nations, it all ended the same way, regardless what natural law they saw and how they lived it out and how they tried to keep order, people still broke out in disobedience, and everyone died. Death reigned from Adam, didn't it? 
But then in Genesis 12, God picked up with the next development and what he promised in Genesis 3.15. He called Abram, one man, and promised to make him a great nation. And in Abram, all the families of the earth would be blessed. That it would spread to all every nation out of Babel. All the families that came out of Babel would be blessed because of this one man that's chosen out from among them. There would be a nation that would lead to blessing for all the other families. The connection between the covenant with Abram, or Abraham, as he's later called, father of nations, is made more explicit in Genesis 22, 17 and 18, where he says, I'll greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sands which are on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies, and in your seed singular, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. There would be a deliverer. This seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head would come through the lineage of Abram. And in that one seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Then the line through which this blessing would come narrows, and the kingly aspect becomes clear. In Genesis 49.10, the scepter will not depart from Judah. One of the tribes, of, you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who becomes Israel, and his fourthborn son was Judah. And through that line, he, it was promised, the scepter would not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh, the one that, to whom it belongs, comes. Finally, this deliverer will come. This serpent-head-crushing leader and king would finally arrive. This seed of Abram who would bless all the nations. And to him, it says, would be the obedience of all the peoples. They would finally get the law that they needed that would usher in order in society. That would bring blessing to the people and that would bring eternal life. It isn't too long until we see the path to this kingdom that will bless all the nations laid out. The conditions to this covenant are given in God's law. What does God tell them right before the giving of the law in Exodus 19, 5 through 8? Now then, if... Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession amongst all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He tells them, hey, you're going to be this kingdom, you're going to have the blessings of God on you, this is the law that you should keep, and all of the Israelites said, all that you command us, we will do. After giving the law, the Lord gave a promise of life and death and blessing and cursing based off of their observance to the law. Deuteronomy 30, 17 through 20. Stick with me. We're going to get past all this jumping around soon. But if you turn away your heart and do not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you will surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death and blessing and cursing. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God and obeying His voice and holding fast to Him. And that leads us to how the kingdom of heaven became called the vineyard of God. That's why I did all that to get to this. We see that, the vineyard of God language, for the nation of Israel again and again in Isaiah 3.14, Isaiah 5.1-6, Isaiah 27.2-6, Jeremiah 12.10-17. and 17. 
And we'll return to those texts when Matthew again uses the imagery of the vineyard in even more detail in Matthew 21. We're not going to read those today, but we will at that time. But for now, the point is, the vineyard is the place for cultivating the blessings of God for the people. In Scripture, wine is a blessing from God for wise and obedient living. And Jessica says, Amen. Wine is a blessing from God for wise and obedient living. Proverbs 3, 9 through 10. It says, When we honor the Lord with our wealth and with the first fruits of our land, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. It's a sign of blessing. Bursting with wine is an undeniable image of fermentation. This clearly is grape juice. Repeatedly, wine is listed among those abundant blessings that God promises to Israel if they keep His covenant. Deuteronomy 7.13, 11.14, and 33.28. And the loss of wine was evidence of God's curse. God dries up the wine of His disobedient people in Hosea 9, 2, Joel 1.10, Amos 5.11, Micah 6.15, again and again and again. So by teaching God's law, by binding and loosing the consciences of men according to that law, the Jews were creating a culture that was marked by the blessings of God. You want to be blessed? You want to have this metaphorical wine on your people? Then obey the law of God and you will have life and you will have covenant blessings. That was to be cultivated amongst the people of Israel who had the actual will of God in tablet form in the law. This is the path to blessing. Abram, you're different than all the other nations. They're doing the best they can do with their limited understanding. You've got God's law. Obey it, and you will be blessed. How'd they do with that? Didn't do real good, did they? But they did have it, and that was what they were tasked to do. By tending the culture rightly, the culture would overflow with blessing and life, represented by the wine. So now the identity of the early morning laborers becomes clear, doesn't it? Who are these early morning laborers? It's the Jews, the descendants of Abraham. Israel has been God's vineyard for years. The nation who was given the law and the people of Israel are the first laborers. They were hired first. They're brought in to cultivate the vineyard, to teach the law of God, to be the blessing amongst their own people and spill over and bless the other nations as well. It was their job to be watchmen, to keep the law, to teach the law to their children. We see that in Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 4. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your sons and your grandsons might fear the Lord your God and keep all of His statutes and His commandments which I command you all the days of your life. Why? So that your days might be prolonged. There'll be life to you. Oh Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it. Why? That it might be well with you and that you might multiply greatly just as the Lord your God of your fathers has promised you. A land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And Deuteronomy 6.11, And your houses will be full of good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you will eat and be satisfied. You cultivate this. You teach it to your children and your children's children. Turn your heart to your kids. Teach them this law, and your people will be overflowing with blessing. You will be the vineyard. 
most of these Old Testament texts about God's vineyard that I've already mentioned actually allude to Israel mismanaging and or destroying vineyard and being judged. For the most part, that's what happens with the nation of Israel, isn't it? For the most part. But God preserves a remnant. The parable of the laborers in the vineyard doesn't give us any foreshadowing of the coming judgment on the majority of the Jews. It's not in here. The judgment coming. It is in your Matthew 21 text. The coming judgment is foreshadowed. But it's not here. But it pictures some of the laborers who worked in the vineyard through the burden of the day and the scorching sun receiving the same pay as others who came on much later. Spoiler alert for the soon-to-come point three. That's the Gentiles. That's what it is. The Jews had worked, fought, and suffered as God's people. They had Egypt. They had the wilderness. They had good kings and bad kings. The Babylonian captivity. The destruction of the first temple. The rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. The creation of the tradition of the elders. They had labored in the vineyard. Well, not all of them, but some of them. Some of them were good, honest, godly people who had not only the lineage of Abraham, but the faith of Abraham. Some of the Jews were not only Abraham's physical descendants, but had the faith of Abraham. It'd be hard for them to see Gentile believers receiving the same pay. That conflict is going to run all the way through the New Testament, by the way. Even with true believers, you're going to see them not knowing how to interact with each other because of the jealousy that they had between one another. Later, Jesus will bring in the even more difficult promises of judgment in the parable of the landowner where the servants kill the landowner's slaves and ultimately his son so that they can receive the inheritance, the vineyard themselves. But the outcome is that the kingdom is taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit thereof. So let's turn now to the identity of the late-day laborers. Who are they? Well, the late-day laborers are a portion of the people bearing the fruit thereof who will inherit the kingdom. Not all, mind you, but a portion of the people bearing the fruit of the kingdom would be Gentiles who had only just begun serving in the vineyard. There would be some Jews, so there would be some Gentiles. The tenders of the vineyard had always been the nation of Israel, hadn't it? It was they who were to teach the ways of God. It was they who were to be a blessing to the nations. But Jesus formed a new community composed of Jew and Gentile alike who would tend the vineyard. And just like the Garden of Eden was cultivated and then was to spread to the ends of the earth, it would start in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and would go to the remotest parts of the earth. This new new people who would be composed of Jew and Gentile would spread the blessings of the kingdom to the entire earth. They would create the culture that would leave the life and blessing of God. We've seen Jesus allude to this truth already. Right after Peter's great confession, we have Jesus' response. Remember what he told him? It's right there in Matthew 16, 18 and 19. I say to you, Peter, that upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, will not prevail against it. All the other nations that teach and enforce laws that ultimately lead to death, you will go and you will penetrate those lines. They'll be contending to hold to their old traditions, but because you've got a resurrected king, a dragon-slaying king, they won't prevail against you. Your message will change the nations, and all the nations will hear, and they all will be brought in slowly but surely. 
nations will be blessed. The gates of hell will not overpower it. I'll give you, the church, the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be what was bound in heaven. You're going to get this right where the Jews were getting it wrong. The tradition of the elders were wrong. What you bind on earth will be what was bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be what was loosed in heaven. They were bringing in the blessing of God. They would make prophets and they would make them twice as much the sons of hell as they were. But you'll make disciples who are sons of God. In the Septuagint, Ecclesia was always the assembly of the people of God. It always meant the assembly of the national community of Israel. So we should understand this as a new application of this Old Testament word. A word proudly owned by the people of Israel as defining their identity as God's people. But now Jesus speaks with extraordinary boldness saying, Upon this rock I'll build my Ecclesia. A different, that community It's not the one. I'm replacing it with a new community that will do what it was supposed to do. The unusual Greek order draws particular attention. This is my ecclesia. They have theirs with the tradition of the elders. But this is mine. And it's his assembly, his church. And he will absolutely build it. And what will be different about this new ecclesia, we've already mentioned this, this new assembly of the people of God will be composed of a different kind of sons of Abraham. Israel was the people of God. They looked back to their lineage with great pride as the physical sons of Abraham. But Matthew's entire gospel is centered around a change. And you see that throughout the rest of the Bible. We're going to return to it in Matthew soon. But Galatians 3, 6-9. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Who are the sons of Abraham? Those who are of faith. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all nations will be blessed in you. You'd think I wasn't just making this stuff up that it's the whole thrust of the Bible, wouldn't you? It's like, hey, apparently Paul's been reading what Matt was saying. No, I've been reading what Paul was saying. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham. The blessings that were promised to Abraham, we're blessed with those blessings because we have the faith that we're his, Abraham's offspring by faith. Later in the same chapter, Galatians 3, 28-29, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants according to the promise. So it's unsurprising that Jesus goes from the new ecclesia, this new assembly of the people of God, to the promises of the Abrahamic covenant applying to his ecclesia. Jesus is again letting the disciples know what to expect. Remember right before this parable? What do we have right before? It's always important. How do we interpret the parable? Look before and look after. It's good clues, isn't it? Right before, Peter said to him, Behold, we... The twelve have left everything and followed you. What will there be for us? Will we be rewarded? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the resurrection, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you will also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Remember we saw how that happened in the book of Acts, and it didn't go well for the twelve tribes of Israel. They rejected Jesus, didn't they? And everyone, not just you, but everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake will receive many times as much in this age and will also inherit eternal life. Does that everyone include also the Gentiles who do it? Yes. The 
blessings of the kingdom will go to you twelve, yes, you've been tending the vineyard longer, but anyone who believes and comes in, they'll get the same reward as you. And then that's, the, that's when he says, so many who are the first will be last, and the last will be first. And now look right after the parable. What's the very next thing? Matthew 20, 16 through 19, so the last shall be first and the first shall be last. He does this sandwich of the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And in 17, he says, when he was about to go to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he'll be raised up. The very people that Jesus came to, he came to his own, they received him not. They crucified him. They're going to reject me. They're not going to receive me as the king of the kingdom. Therefore, they're not going to receive the kingdom, this bulk of the Gentile people. And that's what's coming in Jesus' warning. Jesus' warning his Jewish disciples not to be jealous of the soon-to-be-grafted-in Gentiles. Now, the early morning laborers provoked to jealousy. How does that happen? I mean, we can see the obvious import of that. They would be provoked to jealousy all automatically. But did you know Jesus did not try to avoid offense? As a matter of fact, quite often he would say, he'd rip the band-aid off, so to speak, and just go ahead and get the most offensive things right out the way. He did it on purpose. Remember in Matthew 8? Your turn there. I'm going to let you walk with me. Matthew 8, you've got a... Jews wouldn't even go into a Gentile's house. And you've got a Roman centurion who had a servant that they wanted healed. And they wanted, he wanted Jesus to do it. Jesus said, I'll go to your house. And he said, no, no, you, you don't have to come to my house. I, I'm a man under authority. I understand how this works. You can just say the word and it'll happen. And then Jesus, in front of everybody that's following him, they would, they're amazed that he would even talk to this Gentile. Listen to what he says in front of all these Jewish people, scribes and Pharisees all around. Truly, I say to you, I have now found so great a faith with anyone in Israel. Poking the bear. That's what that's called. It's called poking the bear. Truly, I have not found so great a faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. People from other nations will come and recline with those that you look to as the father of your people in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, the very descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will be cast out into outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you see what he's doing? Not all of you who are Jews are going to receive the benefits of the kingdom, but there'll be Gentiles who do. You who think you've been keeping the vineyard all this time, you're not even going to get the benefits of it, but those who have truly been, the whole time they'll receive it, but any Gentile who does will receive just as much if they have the faith of Abraham. Also, we see the greater judgment on the Jews than on the Gentiles in Matthew 11, 21 through 24. You can turn there if you want. But as Jesus warns that the judgment on the cities where most of his miracles were performed, Horazim, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, these Jewish cities where he spent most of his time, that that judgment would be even more severe than the most notorious Gentile cities, wicked cities like Tyre and Sidon and even Sodom. You, you hate those people? You're glad God destroyed them? It's going to be worse for you. 
he's trying to provoke them to jealousy? He's poking the bear. And the Gentile nations, he has them as judges over Israel. The next chapter in Matthew 12, 39 through 42. He answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves a sign. When they asked Jesus for a sign, he was really the Messiah. And no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was in three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, or the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it. They hated the Ninevites. But the Ninevites will judge you because they're more holy than you are. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and something greater than Jonah is here. You're rejecting me, the Messiah. It's going to be worse for you. And the queen of the south will rise up with this generation, another Gentile, and, and at the judgment and condemn it. Because she came from the end of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Let's see a case study of how this affected them emotionally, of the jealousy that actually rose up. Turn now to Luke 4, 16. In Luke 4, 16, we have Jesus. He comes to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And he reads from Isaiah, and in verse 18, this is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable, favorable year of the Lord. And he told them in verse 21, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him. And were wondering at the gracious words that were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. Heal your own people. What you've done in Capernaum, you've done it in this, these other Jewish cities. Do it here in your hometown as well. You need to perform healing. Don't just preach to us. Heal us. And he said to them, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you, but I say to you in truth, there will be many. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed except for Naaman the Syrian. He says. These prophets only went and helped Gentile people. A Gentile widow and a Gentile Syrian who had leprosy. They didn't go and help Israelites. They helped the Gentiles. And what happened in 28? And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage when they heard these things. And they got up and they drove him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him off the cliff. You think that's called being provoked to jealousy? Yeah. He's, make, he's made them mad. Why? Because the Gentiles can be blessed by the ministry of the kingdom of God just as much as you people can. A man standing in the kingdom would be determined by whether or not they received Jesus as the king. I'm going to have you turn now to Matthew 10, just a few pages back. A man standing in the kingdom would be determined by whether or not he received Jesus as king, not on his ethnic lineage. When you take this fact to heart, you realize just how ridiculous the modern adjective Judeo-Christian is. Guys, there's no such thing as Judeo-Christian. You're a Jew or you're a Christian. I ain't got nothing in common. 
There's no commonality there. You start interpreting the Old Testament through the, the, the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, you have a completely different religion. You leave off the Messiah, you've got a completely different religion. It's not the same. We do not serve the same God as Christ deniers. Amen. Look at who the disciples were to go to first. Matthew 10, 5-6. Do not go the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter into the city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But why? To see if they would receive the message or not. Look at 10, 14-15. And whoever doesn't receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out of the house or city, shake the dust off of your feet. That was a pronouncement that you're not God's covenant people. Shake the dust. If they won't receive your words, you went to Jewish people, but if they won't receive your words, you don't count them as the people of God anymore because they are unclean. The way that you would consider a Gentile, they are unclean because they reject you and your message. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day, in the day of judgment, than for that city. He just keeps poking the bear, doesn't he? Here is what Jesus said they should expect from the Jews and the reason for that treatment in Matthew 10, 17-18. Beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. Who has synagogues? He's talking about the Jews, right? They're going to reject your message. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my name's sake. Why? As a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. There's going to be a change in who the vineyard is. And it's going to consist of Jew and Gentile. And the national heritage, those national, that nation Israel is going to be judged. And there's going to be a new ecclesia composed of both. It's going to be a blessing to all the ends of the earth. Then he continues that pattern, 10, 32-33, Everyone who confesses me before men, who? Everyone, Jew or Gentile alike, you confess me before men, I'll confess him before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And we're going to see that throughout the New Testament. We're almost done. But I want you to turn and see how this exact theme plays out. And you see this over and over again. See it in Acts. But Acts 13... 
have placed you as a light to the Gentiles that you might be, bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as has been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the dis- district. But they shook off the dust from their feet as a protest against them and went to Iconium. They judged them as not the people of God. Isn't it exactly what I told you? And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Turn also to Romans chapter 11, verse 1. rejected his people, has he? Speaking of Israel. Speaking of the Jews, he's not rejected his people, has he? As a whole. He called them friends in the parable, didn't he? The laborers that have been there the longest, called them friends. He's not rejected them, has he? God forbid. For I too am an Israelite, Paul says, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people who he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says? In the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with the God with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at this present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Some of the Jews were saved by what? By believing in the Messiah. There was, but the majority were Gentiles at first. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened, just as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to not see, and ears to not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and their backs bend forever. say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? God forbid. But that by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why? To make them jealous. Now if their transgression is richness for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then that I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify their ministry, my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen to save some of them. They, God saved a bunch of Gentiles, brought them in, gave them the gifts of the Spirit. And Paul is now saying they've become jealous because you're brought in first. And now I'm, I'm now going to magnify that so that they'll see the Gentiles are receiving the kingdom over you. And hopefully some of them will become jealous and come to faith in Christ. So that the first would be last. Uh, or the, because the last was first, the Gentiles were brought in. It provoked them to jealousy so that the, last, the first would end up being brought in ultimately in the last. Which I believe happened prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. A mass conversion took place, most likely, right before the destruction of Israel in 70 AD. I'll take
take you one more place just for funsies. If you'll turn to Romans 9, 3 through 6. myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the laws, and the temple services, and the promises. These laborers who have been there through all that this whole time, they're not receiving the Messiah, and I'm wanting them to be saved because they're not saved if they haven't. Who are the fathers? And from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all? God bless forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God is failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Turn to look a little farther in Romans 9, 22-33. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. As he said in Hosea, I will call those my people who are not my people, and her who is not my beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in that place where it was said, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. God would save them all. You see that? And whoever believed in Christ, whether they came in, they were Jews who had labored in the vineyard before Christ came, or they were brought in at the 11th hour and have only just believed, they're all going to receive the same. Because why? Why? What's the big thing here? Why does this matter so much? Because 2 Corinthians 1, 20-22, you don't have to turn there, but for as many as are the promises of God, in Him they are yes. Therefore, also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us, that all the promises of God find their yes and their amen where? In one person, in Christ Jesus. You get it through Jesus or you don't get it at all. And if you get it in Jesus, you get it. You can receive the blessings of the kingdom if you're a follower of Christ and you're discipling the nations. You say, but now this still isn't just talking about some, I get to go to heaven when I die. This is talking about that Jew and Gentile life. Now, what are we doing? What's our great commission? To tell people that if they don't believe in Jesus, they're going to go to hell, of course, right? No. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. Teaching them to do what? To observe all things whatsoever Christ has taught. That you want to have the blessing of God on all the nations of the world, then disciple the nations. That we want we want the blessing of God. People have to obey the law of God. Well, obeying the law of God save them to let them go to heaven. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the kingdom of God, the blessing of God, that we should be wanting people to obey God's law. Because it brings blessing. It brings, I said before you, life and death, blessing and cursing. And it's still, obeying the law of God still brings blessing. And forsaking the law of God still brings cursing. So what do we do? We disciple the nations. Do we want kings to be saved? 1 Timothy 2. First of all, Paul says, I 
urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and for all that are in authority. Why? In order that we might lead tranquil and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. If you have wicked kings, you can't do that. But if kings come to Christ and they're discipled and now they are Christian kings enforcing Christian laws, it can't save men. But it can lead to flourishing societies where evil is punished rightly and good is rewarded rightly and it's defined rightly. We're to disciple the nations and then be given leaders that the people deserve because we've changed the culture through what? Through the church where we bind and loosen our families rightly. When I punish my children, I do it according to the law of God. In the church, we delineate. We say you're part of the people of God or not according to the standards of the law of God. That we actually draw lines. And when you're, if you're a, if you're a sheriff, you're a Christian sheriff. We don't want Christian sheriff. What kind of sheriff do you want? A non-Christian one? We don't need Christians in politics. You want non-Christians in politics? You know what you get? You get Gavin Newsom's where there's feces in the street everywhere and you can't even keep a store open because the vagrants going to rob everything and you won't punish the thieves but you'll punish the store owners. If you don't have people that understand the basic Christian worldview and enforce the law of God, you can't have a flourishing society. But we gave it up. We took a parable, the parable of the vineyard, that was meant to let us know that all people could receive the blessings of the kingdom of God, that we could usher in the blessings of God to all the nations, and that regardless of whether you're Jew or Gentile, that obeying the law of Christ would bring blessings on the whole world. We took a parable meant to convey that, and we made it, you get to go to heaven when you die, and when you get there, you get all the same thing, no matter what you do. We, got, we had something that told us to work the vineyard and cultivate the vineyard and teach the law of God and disciple the nations, regardless of your nationality, to teach the law of Christ, to bring the blessing of God. It called us to action and promised blessing for the action, regardless of your nationality. And we took it to be, you don't have to do anything, because no matter what you do, you get the same reward when you get to heaven. We took a Gnostic, pietistic interpretation and totally neutered a powerful text that tells us you want the blessing of God and disciple the nations. Where they come short, how can they be saved? Not by keeping the law. That'll bring blessing to societies. They can't be saved by keeping the law. But Jesus isn't just king. He's also our great high priest. It's not the message of this parable that he's our great high priest. But he is. We can't be saved because he's king, just king. We can be saved because we've not kept the law perfectly. And if we were judged according to our keeping of the law, we would be condemned forever and we would have an eternity in hell. But Jesus perfectly kept the law on our behalf. Both messages are true. He's prophet, priest, and king. You want to be saved, you've got to trust in the completed work of Christ who laid down his life on a cross to pay for your sin. But there's still a civil use of the law and a didactic use of the law. There's still a, a pedagogical use of the law. It's not just to show you your sin. It's also to show you your duty and to bring the blessing of, life, uh, of the law to your family and to your culture and your churches. Because that does indeed, in this, in this day and age, this time, right now on earth, blessing comes through that law. Where have you come short? Well, I've been a coward because I didn't even know I needed to be proclaiming this stuff, so I just sat on it because I didn't think I, this place had any place in the public square. Repent. Say, how can I be forgiven? Because Jesus died for you. But repent. Because if we're ever going to turn it back, we've got to start tending the vineyard again. Tend the vineyard. Cultivate it. 
bind and loose according to God's law. Don't be ashamed of what God's word says. He has spoken. And know that as we proclaim these words, they will not return void. They will accomplish what God designs. Kind of gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for where it convicts us. And we thank you for the good news that we are pardoned. Lord, as we believe in Christ Jesus, that we are forgiven of our cowardice, of our compromises, of our weaknesses, of our failures. I pray that you'll help us to recognize our entanglements where we're bringing covenant curses on our lives. Despite the fact that we're forgiven, we still aren't walking as faithful as we should. Grant us repentance in those areas. Open our eyes to see more clearly. And help us, Lord, not only to be blessed and to have heaven, but to be a blessing and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.